Welcome back to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets. I am Pastor Don Riley, joined as always by co-host Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Rock and rolling. Coffee drinking. Coffee drinking and finishing my protein bar. As we speak, super professional. Yep. There we go. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> there we go. It's time for the show. But uh, yeah, welcome back to the show. We are here. This is a special Christmas podcast, Christmas episode of the podcast. Hopefully this will come out on or around Christmas Day. <laughs> no promises, but if you're listening to this on Monday, uh, the day of Christmas this year, 2017, the year of our Lord, 2017, uh, then we were successful. Yeah. I got 12 days, though. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so It's kind of a big target. Sometime in that date range. So I always wonder about when, when skydivers compete and they miss the target altogether and they're professionals. How bad do you have to screw up to miss this? Those targets on those fields are massive. Are they? They are. They're, they're quite large. Probably mm, got to be close to 20 feet across. I don't know. Just do the geometry and think about. Yeah, I know. You're jumping out of a plane at whatever, 12, 13,000 feet, 10,000 feet, whatever it is. Moving at the speed and yeah. Yeah. High speed dirt. That. Like, wasn't it like on the Atari where you had the game where you had the, the, the drop? Yes. The what was that called? I don't remember. I know exactly what you're referring to, too, because I played it. Oh, it was... And, you know, depending on how fast the airplane was going, you know, you'd have to time your drop. Yeah, it was called the word jumper was in the title, wasn't it? That's what I'm thinking. If I had a producer, I could ask the producer to look it up while we're talking. You are the producer. Look it up. I actually, actually, I learned that my title is Predator. Creditor? Predator. Producer, editor. Oh, Predator. Okay, that makes more sense. So they call them Predators. <laughs> yeah, not what you're thinking. <laughs> Come to collect your dues. By the way, for those of you listening who don't know where that term comes from, paying your dues, I actually served my vicarage at a congregation where they still did that, which is they would actually go door to door to collect the offering, the dues. And the way they did it when I was there, they had updated and modified the process. They streamlined it. They just sent around a large manila envelope, and then mm -hmm. you put your money in or your check, and then you just forwarded it to the next person on the list, which was controversial because, of course, if you're not the last person on the list, you get to look at everybody else's offerings that are in the envelope. Oh, my. So in order to rectify that, they just published everybody's offerings at the end of the year for the annual report. I've done that anonymously. I don't think it's helpful, but... It was just, just out of curiosity to see what effect it would have, you know? They're saying, like, so many people gave within this range and so many people gave within this range, you know? Yeah, it's public shaming for sure. It's also an interesting window into the past because I think I've, I haven't talked about it on this podcast, but in my parsonage, the parsonage I live in, there's two front doors. You come in the front door, the exterior mm, door, right. and then in the entryway, there's two doors, one to the left and one to the right. The left door leads to the living room, the residence. The right door leads into the pastor's study. And the house was built by the congregation about the same time they started building the church. And okay. they designed the house in such a way so that the pastor could do work in the house at the parsonage and never interact with his family. Mm -hmm. That way people could come and go anonymously. But here, up until the early 80s, if you wanted to go to communion on Sunday morning, you had to come Saturday evening and confess. And then the pastor would write your name down. And if you didn't come on Saturday night, if you showed up for church on Sunday and thought you were coming to communion, you were sorely wrong. 
So it was like a revolving door on Saturday night. Very much so. Very much so. And likewise, then collecting dues, paying your dues was a part of that also. You could not come to communion on Sunday if you didn't pay your dues. In mm. fact, up until the early 80s of my congregation, uh, you didn't have a choice about paying your dues. You were told. Yeah. This is how you pay. This is how much you, you pay. And if you don't pay, we're coming to your, the elders came to your house and asked why you hadn't paid your dues yet. And every year that changed based on your income. So that leads one to also go, well, how do they know what your income was? Well, you had to tell the church what your income was so that they could adjust for uh, your dues. So the whole thing, yeah, paying your dues literally means they would come to your door and say, hey, the offerings due. Where's your money? My uh, my former employer, his synagogue still did that, even, you know, back in 2005. Wow. Yeah, it was Jew. So in order to get your um, get your seat in the synagogue, you didn't have to sit in it, but you had to get a little name badge that they put on your spot. You could only get that if you had submitted all the documentation and you made you kept up with the contribution. That is very interesting. Or they just take your plaque off. Well, that raises a point, though. You raise a good point. If if we in the Christian Church are aping or imitating the behavior mm-hmm. and the polity of the synagogue, perhaps that should give us cause to step back and ask. Are we are we truly free men in the gospel, according to Galatians, or are we simply aping the law? We're just not doing it as well. Well, we can come up with all sorts of creative ways to do that. I know. I and think that we're original. That's the thing, too. Yeah, I mean, you could come up with like some kind of like online system where you log in and it's super anonymous to everyone except for the whole council and the pastor. And the well, it's like we were talking about before the podcast that it's like iOS 10.1 and then there's iOS 10.2 mm-hmm. and you read their explanation of why you need to, you know, download this upgrade. And, uh, it's better. And it's always to fix some security bug or mm-hmm. phones randomly crash or the camera randomly shuts off, you know, little things, tweaks, but it's essentially the same operating system. Mm-hmm. And that's really how the old Adam operates. It's the same operating system. We just, are constantly updating it and then saying, oh, it's a new operating system. No, it's not. You're still run, running, running, bleh, running, running Windows 98 mm. in 2017-18. Um, yeah. Execution, the problem is the operating system. And we, call it, we call that legacy code. Right, exactly. <laughs> I encountered that this morning. There was a, you know, somebody tried to use some function on the Higher Things website, and uh, it's some old code nobody knew about. Eh, now it gives an error because it's no longer working. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which, which does bring us to our point for this podcast, which is the Christmas Christmas sermon. I am having. We are recording this in the morning. For those of you listening, uh, we normally record in the evening, and apparently in the morning, I can't form words with my uh, face hole that the sound comes out of. I need to articulate. I haven't had enough of my mushroom coffee yet. <laughs> This morning, or this afternoon, or this evening, or in the future when you listen to this, or if they've figured out time travel, uh, or wormhole technology in the past when you listen to this, nah. uh, we are going to do the Christmas sermon from Dr. Norman Nagel from the book that we have, uh, I think we did a podcast from Selected Sermons of Norman Nagel previously, didn't we? Or did we do an article? Not on this show. Not on this show. Mm-hmm. No, we did the, no, we, no, we did the Spiritual Gifts article. That's what it was. Right. This is, and we've referred to the book. The book is the Selected Sermons of Norgan, Norman Nagel. Norgan Nagel. Oh my goodness, this is gonna be a fun podcast today. <laughs> Selected Sermons of Norman Nagel from Valparaiso to St. Louis, published by CPH. Yep. Nice collection. Wonderful. I spent three years memorizing this book. 
Mm-hmm. It's so remarkable. And uh, we are on page 31. And this is from Nagel's, Dr. Nagel's sermon on Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. Uh, something I talked about uh, on a video devotion is something that I, I think about more this time of year, uh, because obviously the season is, what happens when we do, when we disconnect the word's birth from the word's death? Meaning, what happens when we separate Good Friday from the birth of Jesus, Christmas from Easter, Christmas from Good Friday? Because Dr. Luther warned people about putting roses at the foot of the cross, as he called it. Yeah. Meaning, don't try and don't try and make the cross smell better. Don't try and pretty it up and make it attractive. That's a theology of glory, which we talked about in the Veith podcast, uh, the last podcast. But rather that the cross is the death of God. It stinks of of excrement. It stinks of death. Stinks of blood and suffering. And to try and dress up Good Friday to make it more appealing to people, maybe because you think, well, we need more people in church, or. I don't want to offend anyone who is here today or the elders said, pastor, now behave yourself. We have people in church who aren't normally here. Whatever it may be, when you try and tame the good news of Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, you end up abstracting the gospel because the gospel is Jesus. It is concrete, real Jesus for you. And then how he gives that to you through the gifts. Likewise, then Christmas, I think we're even more guilty of this than Mm -hmm. we are at Easter time because Christmas is so commodified. It is such a capitalistic event now. And as a person I follow on Instagram wrote, if you have to go bankrupt in order to show your love to someone, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. And that's a danger that we all struggle with at this time of year is not only buying gifts for friends and family, but buying gifts for people that we want to, like you said, before the podcast, people want to show you, they want to express to you their gratitude for you or express their appreciation of you. And because Mm -hmm. they have extra, they have abundance, they want to give some of that to you. And most of the time, it's altruistic. It's selfless. They just want to show you their appreciation with money or gifts or whatever it may be. But then there is the feeling of obligation. I have to pay this person back or I have to give them a gift in return or worse, I have to do better than they did. Yeah. Or at least of equal value. I mean, you gotta, you gotta, or greater value. Otherwise, what are they going to think of me? Mm. Even though you may not have anything. And I think growing up very poor myself, there's also another, a third rail to this, which is we, we don't want people to know we're poor Mm. because of the shame that's associated with that, the guilt associated with, and maybe not so much anymore, but at least when I was growing up, if you, if you were a man and you didn't have a job, especially if you were a man with a family, you didn't have a job, you were, you were looked at like you were a bum, like you weren't providing for your family. There was guilt assigned to that, uh, sight unseen, you know, regardless of why you were unemployed. And so when I was growing up, we, we had to appear as if we weren't poor. And I know for a fact that there were times my parents took loans out at Christmas time (laughs) to buy presents, to pay for gas so we could drive to relatives house and and do everything that everybody else was doing versus just calling family on the phone and saying, we cannot afford gas to even drive the four hours it takes to get to your house for Christmas. And had we done that family would have bought the gas for us. They would have made sure that we were taken care of, but the pride, the shame, the guilt that goes with that this time of year is so heavily weighted. And it has so much more gravity than any other time. I think so. We get lost in it. 
And then you come to Christmas, Christmas Eve service, Christmas Day service, whatever it may be, and the expectation is the same, to elevate the worship service, to elevate the sermon, to elevate the smiles and the Merry Christmases and dressing up, not just your Sunday best, but your Christmas best. Yeah. And the pressure and the anxiety that creates, and it's all needless, because ultimately, what we don't often pay attention to, Athanasius nails this in the Incarnation, but that Jesus's humiliation begins at conception. Mm, sure. Good Friday is not his humiliation. That's just the climax of it. His humiliation right. is the fact that, as Paul says in Philippians 2, he gave up authority as God to become a man. Mm. Not to say he's not fully God and fully man, but that he gave up the authority to exercise his deity. So when people ask, why is he constantly asking the Father for things? He's God. Because he gave up that authority. When he asked the Father, take this cup from me, your will be done. That's because he gave up his authority. When he's yeah. on the cross and people say, why can't you save yourself? He gave up that authority. He can't save himself. You, you only really kind of see it play out after uh, the resurrection. Very much so. Right? Where, where the authority over, like, say, creation, over life and death. He, he exercises that before, but in kind of a limited way, right? Or restrained way, maybe. It's restrained say. in the sense, remember the disciples in Matthew, following Matthew 18, I think it is, that the disciples say, we tried to exercise demons and it didn't work. How, how, what huh. happened? He said, well, you didn't pray to the Father. <laughs> that your, your mistake yeah. was thinking that because you're with me and I taught you some words, they, all, hmm. they almost treated exorcism like a, like a spell, like an incantation. Right. If we just say the right words, we can expel demons in your name. And he's saying, well, you have no faith, though. The problem you can't exercise demons is because you have no faith. And if you had faith, you would have turned to the Father and said, Father, if your will would be done, if you would have mercy on this person, please exercise this demon and use me as your instrument. But instead, yeah. you just walked up to the person and demanded the demon come out of them. And that doesn't work. So not even the disciples paid attention to Jesus' example of humility. So then at Christmas time, as Dr. I think Dr. Kenneth Corby points this out, or maybe it was somebody else, but that there was no room for them in the inn, and mm. that the, the key words in that sermon or in that text are for them. Not that there was no room in the inn. There was no room for them in the inn. And there's a big difference grammatically in those two things. There may have been... Or in the guest room or whatever. It doesn't really matter, <laughs> that part. But the point being, in his point being, that we so often want to romanticize the, the nativity of our Lord that we, again, lose the subtext, the social subtext of the gospel, which is there's no place for Jesus in this world. Hmm. And that when he comes to tabernacle amongst us and his own did not receive him, that doesn't happen after the baptism in the Jordan. That happens from conception forward, as is proven by Herod's command to kill every firstborn male under two years old right. in, in the surrounding area. That the very act of binding yourself to a to the ova to this woman's egg the very act of conception is a humiliation for the creator of the universe who is without boundary and is limitless right right and so by trying to dress up christmas and make it into a pageant and sweeten it make it more appealing because the people that are there are priesters christmas easter christians and there's a lot of them and yet as i i pointed out you don't do that at, at funerals mm -hmm. at least i don't at funerals, yeah. I recognize most of the people at the funeral aren't believers in Christ, and so I can just let the gospel rip because anything I say to them is absurd in their right. in their hearing. So I just yeah. let it rip. 
And I just, one day the light went off, call it the Holy Spirit, whatever, where it was like, well, if I do this at sermons or at funerals with the sermon, why don't I do this every Sunday with the sermon? Because there's a whole bunch of old Adams in church on Sunday. And I don't know which of them are repentant and which of them are believers. And likewise, then at Christmas and Easter time, just let it rip. Because how do you how do you say this is the Lamb of God who dies for the sin of the world without pointing out that's you guys? Yeah. You are the world, therefore you have sin. You can use all sorts of flowery language and make it, like you said, kind of romanticize the whole thing. But he, I mean, even in, you see this sometimes where they romanticize the idea of him being an infant. But, uh, you know, is our hymn, hymn, which hymn is it? Uh, what child is this? You know, born that man, that man. Um, you know, born to die, basically. <laughs> well, there's we that famous that. picture that folks run on social media, and I don't know where it came from, but it's half the picture is the baby Jesus mm-hmm. on Mary's lap, and the other half is the adult Jesus, Lord from the cross on Mary's lap. Right. And the two of them, and then right below it is the, the words of the hymn, What Child Is This That Lay on Mary's Lap? That it's not one or the other, but it's the same person. And that his passion, his suffering, again, doesn't happen on Good Friday alone, but rather throughout. But we try, and, we try and limit that, I think, because it makes us uncomfortable. Uh, the thing is, especially this time of year, the fact that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are and yet did not sin applies also to the womb, to the fetus. Mm. That when you have a stillborn child or you miscarry a child or your child is born and then dies because of SIDS or something, you want to know in concrete fact that Jesus understands your pain. He understands the whole event of a child dying before during or after birth and especially at this time of year if you've had to bury your own child and you're sitting there at christmas time that's in my experience a focal point of your christmas is basically compartmentalizing bearing or suppressing the fact that there's somebody missing from this and this time of year in particular reminds you of that not just babies but just family in general friends in general people that you know that you care about that are not here at the holidays that's when you remember them the most acutely because it's the holidays. Right. And to know that the word of God was conceived, grew to maturity in his mother's womb, was born in the same way that we're born, grew up in the same way. He's just as helpless as my baby daughter is right now, who's seven weeks old. Yep. So that no matter what happens to Gita, the Lord has been through that already. Jesus has already been through that experience for her, for me, for all of us. So that even yeah. if she were to die now, I know that he understands and he's able to sympathize with that. Yeah, you wonder, I mean, even the adult Jesus, uh, I, I imagine, um, thought regularly of, of those infants that died in Bethlehem. Right? That died in Jerusalem, right? Yeah, Jerusalem, the whole surrounding region. Really, yeah. think about that question. Why did all those babies have to die so that you could live? Well, mm-hmm. they died so that I could save the world from sin. Okay, <laughs> but pretty heavy, though. <laughs> that's super heavy, right? It's one thing to say, where were you when my brother Lazarus died? Why Mm. did you take so long to get here? It's another thing altogether to go, well, you know, the the hundreds, maybe thousands of babies that were murdered for my sake. And not just them, but think about think about Israel and Egypt at the beginning of Mm -hmm. the book of Exodus. That's the first thing we're told at the beginning of the book is there were so many Israelites and they had so many babies that the Egyptians were just trying to kill them all, all the male children. And if it wasn't for the Israelite midwives, there would have been no Israel. They would have been wiped out. That's something that we really don't probably quite understand. I mean, we haven't seen that kind of infanticide, uh, I suppose, abortion. Um, but but that's been normalized to the point where we don't, 
experience it, the horror of it, the way that. The way well, I tell you what, though, if they did, the, if they, if every evening on the news you were shown an abortion, I guarantee you, abortions would not be treated as normal. Mm-mm. The fact that they're kept, in fact, as was it two years ago, those videos, you know that. Oh yeah, the the undercover stuff. Undercover videos. Those people went to jail for, yeah. for recording those videos. They were sued and taken to court. And went to jail for those videos. Yeah, I forget his name, but that's right. He was, he was, he was. He's like, wait a minute. So you're saying that if I videotape someone <laughs> admitting to murder, <laughs> admitting that they're violating their own their own mission statement, their own ethics, I'm the criminal? Yeah. How yeah. does that work? But that that's that's our country in a nutshell. You can't videotape factory farming because it's against the law. That's right. Because as heads of corporations have stated publicly, senators and congressmen have stated publicly. If people actually saw how we get their pork to them or their chickens, they'd be vegetarians because it's a horror show the way that they treat animals. And I was talking with another pastor this morning before the podcast that this is the thing is that we really do neglect first article gifts in this country. And maybe that's a third, maybe that's a first world problem. You know, we are the 1% and we can afford to be gluttonous and slothful and, and treat it normally like it's normal. But for nine-tenths of the world's population, gluttony and sloth aren't an option. Mm-mm. And it's easy to be glib and smug about these things in the abstract and say, well, out of sight, out of mind, so to speak. I have an iPhone. I have a MacBook. I have an iPad. I know whose hands made those things. I know those people live in uh, train cars behind the factory in China. Mm-hmm. But... As as someone has said, a, a social critic said, well, we could make those in the United States. They just cost four times as much. Right. And so who wants to pay $2,000 for a new iPhone? Or or more, yeah. All you have to do is just pretend that a child didn't make your iPhone. That's all you have to do. Oh, well, they don't. No, that's all just rumor. Right, it's all rumor. Because they're not allowed to record that stuff and post it for people to watch. Well, but they put in all the nets around the factory, so at least you can't jump. Killing themselves. They just bounce up and go right back in the window they jumped out of. <laughs> Which it does actually go to the point as we prepare to get into this, the sermon text is mm-hmm. we try to romanticize the things that cause us the most discomfort. That's right. It, it, whether it be death itself, where we romanticize death, you know, he or she is in a better place now. She's looking down on us. He's up in heaven fishing with his old buddies. Mm. to, we'll just pretend that my iPhone was made in a magic jelly bean field. Yeah. <laughs> the iPhone tree. The iPhone tree. Just go pick a new, that's right. That's why every year there's a new iPhone, because every year there's a new crop of, of iPhone fruit. That's right. It falls to the ground and then and then comes forth. Right. It's like a, a guy I, I know said, uh, we can't get rid of war because then how would we eat? <laughs> That's how we invented all canned foods, and right, right when that Napoleon war is what powers our economy. It's driven our economy since the 1940s. Yeah, now we have perennial, uh, well, quote unquote, war, just conflict, right? We don't declare war it's just anymore. Just economics, baby. Yeah, we need a th- we need the th- nuclear threat. Yes, we're always the good guys, and yeah. we're not allowed to question whether we're not the good guys, whether we're on That's the right. wrong side of history or the right side of history. But this is my point then. As Christians, we are free in Christ to look at ourselves critically, look at ourselves as a whole, look at our own country and say, I don't think we're on the right side of history, or we are on the right side of history, or mm-hmm. does it really matter which side of history we're on if we're not on the side of the cross? Mm-hmm. Or if we're not in the shadow of the cross, does it really matter what side of history we're on? 
No, not really. Because let's say you're a social activist. Or let's say you're in the opposite ditch. You could care less that children make your iPhone. You just Mm -hmm. need a new iPhone. Regardless of what side you stand on, the side of the righteous or the unrighteous, when you die, you're going to be in a grave right next to that person that you fought with. Yeah, that's right. Over this. And neither one of you is going to see the resurrection. So what does it really matter in the end? And yet, talking with this pastor friend of mine, if you recognize first article gifts for what they are, gifts, then maybe you're not so given to gluttony or you're mm-hmm. not so um, arrogant about sloth or wastefulness. Maybe mm-hmm. you spend more time on your knees in prayer because you recognize you can't control the rotation of the world. You can't control economics and commerce and war and all these things. That These right. are above your pay grade. And that right. as a pastor, as a Christian, where your vocation is at, that's what you're called. That's where you're called to serve. Right. And if you've got it, it's a gift. If you like in my situation, I don't have it currently. And, uh, that's, I, that's a gift in its own way, but, um, because it teaches, teaches you what you had that you don't have now, <laughs> you know, the, the blessing of, of preaching, teaching of, yeah. Alcoholism and drug abuse skyrockets during Christmas. Mm. Because when you don't see these things as gift, even poverty, even the fact that you can't buy presents, even though you may not be able to afford gas to drive to your grandma's house for Christmas, if you don't recognize the giftedness of life or that your grandma is a gift, your families are gifts, that in and of itself you don't need to buy something to show your affection, your love, your adoration for others. You just have to show up. And that even if you can't show up for other people, you can still call them, you can still text them, you can still Skype with them, you can Google chat, whatever it might be. You don't have to spend money to show love. Well, that isn't love. Right, right of course. Right, exactly. All love must be a transaction. Otherwise, it's not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, let's uh, let's dive into it. Okay. Because that's what that's Dr. Nagel's after. We're on page 31, folks, of Luke 2, verses 1 through 20, Christmas sermon. The shepherds went proclaiming, but they also went back to their sheep. Same old sheep, but no longer the same old shepherds. While minding their sheep, they heard God's word. And now they went on minding their sheep, believing God's word, that told them what was for them from God. Quote, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There you go. Yeah. Jesus doesn't draw them out of their vocation. Uh, He puts them right back into it, uh, but with a new paradigm, right? A new way of seeing it. That's an excellent point, and I'm not being condescending to you. That's an excellent point, because I in Psalm, either on his commentary on Job or in his commentary on Psalm 118, Luther points out, Dr. Luther points out, that the purpose of justification is not to, to take you out of this world, as the late medieval penitential system taught, mm-hmm. but rather to actually drive you down into yourself. That our problem isn't that we're not human. Our problem is that we don't want to be human. We want to be mm-hmm. God. And that mm-hmm. the purpose of justification, the purpose of sanctification, the purpose of the word of God becoming flesh is to say, I'm God, I'm your Savior, I'm your Christ, and you're not. So go back and enjoy being a human being, because this is why I made you. I didn't make you to be me. As Dr. Corby says, there's only one Jesus. God doesn't need a lot of little Jesuses running around. He's got mm-hmm. one of them. He doesn't need that. What he needs is a whole bunch of human beings running around, taking care of their neighbor. Mm-hmm. So that, as Nagel points out, the shepherds may go one direction. They may go to see the, the Christ child, 
But that doesn't then lift them out of this world, but rather they're sent back to their flocks, same vocation. They don't get to go to the penthouse. They don't cash in their lottery check. That's right. They go back to their sheep. And for those of you who don't know, being a shepherd is not the most noble profession in those days. It wasn't considered no. the queen of, of professions or whatever you, may, however you want to say it. You were considered kind of, you know, that's what people that couldn't graduate from high school did. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the, the special kids, let's say. Yeah, there's, a, there's no showering facilities in the field. <laughs> right, exactly. This is why the subtext of David and Samuel is so interesting to me. Again, mm. social subtext in the Bible are fascinating to me. David's yeah. out with the sheep. Where are the brothers? They're going to a party. Yeah. There's a festival. It's a holiday. They're going to the party. A little parade, parade all the kids. Right, right exactly. Where's David? He's on the field. Why? He's the runt. He doesn't get a, he doesn't get a vote like Joseph. Joseph is the runt. He doesn't get a vote. And oh, but he was ruddy and handsome, right? He was ruddy and handsome. I always like that <laughs> ruddy complexion. He was ruddily complexed. So this yeah. is the point. The shepherds go back, but they're no longer the same old shepherds. Mm -mm. But rather, they've heard God's word. And believing in God's word, they now understand what the relation of them to their God is. Yeah. A Savior is born unto us, Christ, who is the Lord. Likewise, then Nagel continues, Joseph went back to his carpentry. Mary went back to caring for her child in her home. We are told she pondered these things in her heart. God knows her heart. We know she pondered the birth, the child, and the words that had been spoken of him. The word pondering means put together putting together. Yeah. She pondered, she put together how this baby of hers could be the one of whom such things were spoken. I wish there were more of the dynamic between Jesus and Mary in the gospel. Yeah. Because is there ever a time after the birth of Jesus that Mary doesn't treat him like he's a delinquent? That's right. Yeah, the wedding at Cana is the last time she talks, right? That's their, and their last... He says, uh, your mom and your brothers and sisters are here to collect you, to take you home. And he says, who are my mother, brothers and sisters? Yeah, that's not, not easy to handle. No, right? That it's just a constant refrain whenever Mary shows up of questioning. What's this all about? Why is this happening? What are you doing? As yeah. a mother would do. That's right. Again, Jesus is fully man and fully God. He has a mom. And she treats him like any mother would treat her son, regardless of his claims at divinity. Because as I, one old-timer said to me one time long ago, you're never more naked than when you're in front of your own family. Yeah, that's true. And what that means is, as my own children discover as they get older, I've had to change their diapers. Mm -hmm. My daughter, seven weeks old, threw up on me this morning. She belched milk up on me, all over me. That's how I started Sweet. my day off. And you just look at it, you, you just... You just, you, you embrace it. Well, there's a, there's kind of this reality that we, we like to have children that we can stand next to, you know, when they graduate from high school or college and be so proud of them, but you don't, well, you may not get that. And if you do, do get that, you didn't get it without all the other stuff that comes along, right? With the dirty diapers and the vomit and everything. Everything, the, the, the flu, the Christmas concerts, mm -hmm. the really bad learning how to play oh, yeah. an instrument in fourth and fifth grade. <laughs> All the assignments that you have to help them with that are mind-numbing. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Everything that goes into being a parent, the vocation of the parent, it begins with the humiliation. Again, it begins with humiliation and ends with humiliation because you're never good enough. You've never done enough. And at the end of the day, when you think, I'm good enough, I've done enough, 
well, there's the morning and there's another day to prove that you were wrong. <laughs> so no matter how much you think you might be killing the game as a parent, your children are a constant reminder. They're the mirror of the law that says you need Jesus. You need a lot of Jesus. Yeah. And at, to Nagel's point then, that when you hear the gospel, you don't get to stop being a parent. <laughs> you don't get to go live in an ashram in India. You have to go mm -hmm. back to being a parent. You're just a baptized parent now. So that the ultimate mm. word that you speak to your children is forgiveness, not yeah. judgment. Well, it, it's interesting, too, because Mary has that perspective where she can see Jesus for the totality of what he did. Not, not just the cross. You know, we preach Christ crucified. Um, but we preach Christ made man. <laughs> and, and everything in between. And that pondering, you know, even goes into his ascension. You know, she's still... Right. Well, think of uh, the words of Simeon and Anna. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mary is told point blank, your entire existence from now on will be pain. Yeah. Not because of anything you've done or not done, but because of this child. That right to the very core of who you are, right to your very soul. And not just you, but the rising and falling of The rising many. and falling of many in, in Israel. Exactly. That it's hard enough being a parent, but to be the parent of the Son of God, who is the Savior, <laughs> that's, I mean, you can't comprehend that. Nobody can comprehend that. Mm -mm. And to try and psychoanalyze it in the present tense and then throw that psychoanalysis back 2,000 mm -hmm. years into the past and try and understand her motives, it just ain't going to work. It just no. is not going to work. So, so continually, especially in Luke's gospel, right, she ponders these things. She treasures them up. She does. She ponders. She puts them together in her heart. That is, she doesn't talk with other people about it. She just is always thinking about it, putting it together. How's, how's this going to work out? Right. How you know? is this going to work out? The rising and falling of many. Cleaving bone from very marrow, this word. But that's what the gospel does. The gospel forgives us so that we can go into our vocations free from the burden of worry and guilt and shame. Of asking the question, what will God think of this? Or what is God going to say to that? Or what can I expect at the last day because of this? Mm -hmm. I mean, the answer is you, you're good. Everything's yeah. going to be okay. Even when they're not okay, it's going to be okay. Yeah, so it'd be kind of like us saying, you know, pondering, you know, the Christ died for me, right? Or he was born for me, dirty, rotten sinner, or, or whatever it is that day. Or, you know, he, he died for this struggle or, you know, for this poverty or this need or this, this abundance or whatever. Well, and a baby is a baby is a baby. So the, the mm -hmm. shepherds come and see the baby. The parents see the baby. The wise men come from the east. They see the baby. And yet, with the exception of Mary, no one's actually allowed to see the end of the story. I thought he had a halo. Right. And and the cattle were lowing. And <laughs> There were angels fluttering about. Angels fluttering. No, the, the <laughs> angels were there, for those of you who don't know, the angels were there to protect uh, Bethlehem from the devil and all of his fallen angels from mm. murdering Jesus. So I asked this question. We, we, we do this Bible study every year at this time. What happens immediately after the angels withdraw from Bethlehem? Right? Oh, every firstborn male under two years old is murdered. Hmm. If you don't think the devil was angry about the birth of Jesus, just read what comes right after they flee. One, they flee. Let's put that together. <laughs> they flee to Egypt until Herod is dead. And even more importantly, I think, or at least more kind of catastrophic levels, 
uh, all of these babies are murdered. And, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, Rachel's. Um, yeah, Rachel weeps for her children. Yeah, Rachel weeps for her children. All because of these are prophecies no are just tumbling now. Up yeah. to this point, it's a prophecy. It's, pro it's a thin trickle. It's a thin stream of prophecies. Now at the birth of Jesus, it's just a tumble of prophecies, one after the other after the other. And that's really the point. We could try and lie about the Christmas story. We could invent all this stuff. We could make Jesus into Superman or Santa Claus or <laughs> whatever mythological figure you want to assign him to. But what you have to dig into is either Jesus isn't a real person, and that's how they're able to apply all these prophecies to him. He's like King Arthur. <laughs> or he is a real person, a real historical person, attested to by both Christians and non-Christians as being a real person. And yeah. therefore, all of the prophecies assigned to him are true. Yeah. In the fact that he is the truth of the prophecies. But there really is no, at least that I can think of, there's really no middle ground between Jesus is who the Old Testament says he's going to be, or we just invented this guy named Jesus, and we just assigned all these prophecies to him. Which, by the yeah. way, is what a lot of Orthodox Jews would say. Yeah. Is or that Christian. we hijack the Old Testament. Well, think about, uh, you know, the prophet says that, you know, we, we, we esteemed him not, I mean, we didn't recognize him. And then the apostles pick up on that. Like, we, like they don't seem to quite understand who he is in their own life. And then in the epistles, it's repeated that, that he, was, he wasn't much to look at. <laughs> Which probably leads to, to the, the point of why the disciples are continuously still arguing with each other decades after Jesus' ascension. Mm -hmm. They argued with each other while I was there, so of course they're going to argue with him afterwards. Yeah. And as Jesus says to his own mother, Kena, what does this have to do with me, woman? <laughs> now you'd think you saw a guy ascend into heaven and kind of disappear in the cloud. That that right, would have right. Some impact. That it might give you pause. I mean, you're going to still argue you're human, but at, you know, we we did see him rise into the clouds and disappear. He did say just as he said he would. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we ought to tighten it up a little bit. I'm just saying. We could at least table this until he comes back. But uh, kind of bring it back to what we started with. Either Jesus is who the Gospels say he is, because so much of the Gospel is just a summary of the Old Testament prophecies about him. Or we're just lying about who he is. We're just making this up as we go. And thus, the purpose of Christmas is either kind of the big kickoff for a year of lying about Jesus, who he is, so we can all feel better about ourselves. Hmm. Everything that is said about him is true. Go listen to the Messiah, Handel's Messiah. And therefore, we have to be much more serious, I think, about how we deliver this good news. Yeah. Because the backspin of the good news is the shepherds go back to their sheep. They probably die shepherds. The mm -hmm. wise men go back. They die in the east as wise men. Mary mm -hmm. still dies. Joseph is dead. Jesus mm -hmm. dies, rises from the dead. All of these people still have to go back to their vocations, and they still have to live in the hope that what they've heard will come true. Yeah. Not just in the present tense, but in the future tense. Because if the gospel is true for me right now, great, I'm here. But what about an hour from now when I'm not here? Or 10 mm -hmm. years from now when I'm not here? Or when I'm on my deathbed and there's no preacher for me? What then? Is the gospel still for me? Yes, yeah. of course it is. Yeah. It doesn't change. Yeah. You change, and yet you're still the old Adam sinner. You still need the gospel. It's just as you get older, I think you more things are hung on you mm. that, that point to the cross to say, you're not invulnerable, invincible, immortal, 
you're not bulletproof, you're not smart, you're not in control. Mm-hmm. You need more Jesus. Truth. So you either, I think, you either become much more emphatic and urgent about the gospel, as Peter talks about in his epistle, or you become less emphatic about it because it just scares you the older you get. Huh. You know, my, my failures as a human being at 46 are, it's a much bigger pile than when I was 36. Yeah, that's what I say. It starts, it starts to back up a little bit. Yeah, it, it really, yeah, it backs up. You, you need more than just a plunger to get, <laughs> to get my good works out of the way or my bad works out of the way. Or a snake. Or yeah, exactly. You need to kind of rip out the entire septic. <laughs> just start from scratch because it's a it's not there's no healing this problem. Yeah, just move. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just move. Just move to the it's gospel side problem. of the street. Exactly. That's why my doctor father used to say, whenever we hold up our good works to Jesus, he asks, Oh, wow. Um, did you want the coronation at the tertiary plant or at the dump? That's that's super impressive. Did you want a tin can for a crown? Or this old pie tin that I found laying in this pile over here. Mm-hmm. Like, do you really think that the person who died for the sin of the whole world, past, present, and future, is impressed by your good work? Yeah. It's not even a consolation prize. <laughs> Doesn't that come for something? I went on a pilgrimage. And Jesus says, "That's I went through hell. How, how about that? <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah, we're, that's, what, that's what putting together, that's what pondering means, is that not only is it point to Mary pondering all these things in her heart, but this is what we as Christians do continuously also. Mm-hmm. Because we are fully sinful in ourselves, in our flesh, and yet fully righteous in relation to Christ, of course we're going to ponder this in our heart too, which is what causes us to pull back from the gospel, because mm-hmm. it's just too good to be true. Yeah, also means that we kind of have to slow down. Um, maybe that's a Sabbath kind of thing, you know, just slow down and take take the time to consider it. Slow you know, down, to hear again, move too and, fast. And to, yeah, to make the fair. moment last. Mm-hmm. But the gospel is not that, it's not too groovy. It's just not. I know I'm thinking about that scene from The Simpsons where Mr. Burn is singing the song while he's dancing down the street. Ah, there we go. Now the brain's waking up, starting to put together these patterns. Nice. So moving on, the words concerning Mary's baby are spoken to you also, Dr. Nagel says. To you is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. To you. That is who is for you from God. Such is God for you. Fear him above all else, and from him hear the message. Nothing comes ahead of that. Nothing is surer than that. Everything else comes after that, fits in with that, is illumined by that fact. This is the four units of the gospel mm-hmm. that you'll often hear Lutherans talk about, or at least some Lutherans. <laughs> that the, the two, well, this is catechetical, right? For you require all hearts to believe. This is mm-hmm. kind of the climax of Luther's explanation of the sacrament of the altar. Right. He is truly well, worthy and well-prepared who believes these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. Because these words for you require all hearts to believe. That those are some of the most, for me anyways, personally, uh, those are some of the most important words in all of Christianity for me outside the Bible. Yeah, yeah because it's not abstract again, right? Exactly. It's, for, it's concrete that there's an actual preacher speaking the actual words of the gospel to an actual sinner who needs them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The difference between first and second order discourse, words about the gospel versus the gospel, are just those two little words, for you. Don't talk to me about what Jesus does. Tell me what Jesus does for me, right? We talk about this in confirmation class a lot when we talk about hymns, when we, le- when we learn how to judge a hymn, that a good hymn is about Jesus, but a great hymn is Jesus for you. It preaches. That a great hymn, a great Lutheran hymn will preach. So that not only is the pastor preaching the pulpit, 
but the entire congregation are preaching to one another. Much like when we confess the words of the Nicene Creed. Mm-hmm. I picked up the old early church, uh, what is it, the, the preface to the creed. That is, we will now confess our baptismal faith and show love for each other, confessing the words of the Nicene Creed. And mm-hmm. again, it's, it's a small detail, but it's one that people at church have picked up on. That what, yeah. Why do we have to confess this creed every Sunday? It's our baptismal, it's a summary of our baptismal faith. It's a summary of the whole Bible. And we're showing love for each other because what is more loving than to point people to Jesus? Mm-hmm. Nothing. As Luther says, our primary vocation as Christians is to worship God. I mean, we could call it like corporate pondering, right? <laughs> we're putting it together. We're putting it all together and, and putting, putting it together with each other, right? You're on point today because that's a really great point. It just it happens. That if we sit alone in our house and we put this together in our heart, we put this together in our mind, that's our putting it together. But when we put it mm-hmm. together in a group, in a congregation, now all of a sudden all of your neighbors are walking with you, not only pointing out what you miss, but also cementing for you, curing for you some thoughts that may be tangled up or maybe loose ends or maybe you're not so sure about your conclusions. That this is why it's difficult to be or it's difficult to impossible to be a Christian in isolation from other Christians, yeah. in isolation from the church, because you're still a sinner. The old Adam is still hanging around your neck like a big scarf, <laughs> and a lot of times we don't recognize that the 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 scarf, to use the analogy, is choking us, because right. we're constantly pulling on it, trying to trying to loosen it. But in the end, rather than give us comfort and warm us, it's choking us. And it takes our neighbor to come along and go, here, let me fix that for you. It's like my son last night asked me to untie his shoelace because he had mm. like quadruple knotted it. <laughs> and I, he's looking at it like it's a puzzle to be solved. I just go, where's the, where's, okay, here's where it comes out at. Here's where the lace comes out at, right? We've all done this as parents. Now uh-huh. let's just track that lace backwards through this tangle. Oh, there's where it starts at. So we're just going to pull the one thread. Because you know what the kid does is he pulls hard one direction and it actually tightens the knot. It makes it worse. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because he's seeing it just as a big, whole, knotty ball versus trying to find just that one thing that's causing the whole thing to get tangled. But you know what teaches you that? Being a parent <laughs> and having to do it over and over again and realizing, oh, I've been doing this wrong my whole life. I have not done. I have not disentangled this the right way. Well, someday Velcro will come back. Oh, please, sir. May I have more Velcro? <laughs> Soundless, it has to be soundless though. Silent mm. Velcro. Apparently, they've invented that already. Uh, a couple of years ago, I read an article that, I, I, that somebody had invented a Velcro that doesn't make a sound. Now, what happened I, to I, it? I can't, yeah, I can't get my head around that. Right? So, this is the point then that it's the four units of the gospel, it's the four units of the shepherds hearing the sermon, it's the four units of the wise men hearing the sermon, it's the four units of, of Mary hearing the sermon. Mm-hmm. That the gospel is in the present tense in the for you-ness of it for you. God is for you. That those two little words are the difference between you left to speculate, to ponder whether it's for you, or simply to say amen. This is the body of Christ given in the death for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. There's no doubt whatsoever at the Lord's table that this is for you. Yeah. That, that God is on your side. Everything about that ritual, about that event, from the the concrete, tangible gospel of the bread and the wine being shoved into your mouth, to the very words of the preacher being spoken as it's happening, 
that entire moment, and it may be the only moment in your entire week when you're positive that this gospel is yours, that God is for you. Because God's smart that way. He's cagey. Not only does he give you a preacher to shove it in your ears, but he mm-hmm. gives you himself to shove it in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, there's a way that without the sacrament, you you might just think of, say, the Christmas story as kind of a nostalgic tale, you know, something sentimental and, and isn't that cute or isn't that lovely, but but you miss that, like Dr. Nagel says, that this is this these words spoken to Mary are were spoken to you, you know, are spoken to you. It's also why the Scandinavians thought that Christians ate babies. Oh, little fact. But uh, the reason that they had so much trouble with those Norsemen, the early monks, is because when they explained the Lord's Supper, the Norsemen heard, "Wait, the baby Jesus? Wait, what? You cook babies into the bread? How does that work?" <laughs> And that actually was perpetuated in the Middle Ages by Jewish people and non-Lutherans. Or did Lutherans say that? No, Lutherans said that about the Roman Catholics. That's where the whole myth of, of the werewolf and the vampire and all that stuff came from. Is uh, This is a little known fact, but this is historically true. You can go chase this down. That the, the myth of these Eastern Europeans, the Albanians and the Balkan state people, the reason that the vampires and the werewolf and eating babies and blood rituals is because the the different denominations at the time of the Reformation were vilifying each other through propaganda. So the Lutherans were saying that the Roman Catholics were vampire, you know, they practiced vampirism, and the Roman Catholics said to the Lutherans, they kidnapped babies and eat them. And the, aye, aye, aye. the Jews jumped in and, and said the same thing, that Christians steal Jewish babies and baptize them in the middle of the night. One of my personal favorites. If you're not good, the Christians will come and baptize you. <laughs> to, to the extent that they even said that Christians threw Jewish babies down wells to drown them. Oh. And Christians said Jews did the same thing to Christian babies. Uh, that's where the myth of goblins, you have to leave milk out at night so the goblins don't kidnap your baby and replace it with a pig. Uh, did not know that. Uh, big fan of Grimm's fairy tales right here. And <laughs> <laughs> all of these myths have a grounding in something very real, or at least a very real gossipy propaganda campaign. And at that mm-hmm. time, everybody was, was Christian or Jewish. They were a religion. And they were always vilifying people that weren't of their religion. Mm-hmm. And it, it went from Christians are going to sneak into the house and steal our baby to goblins. Goblins will yeah. come, trolls will come and steal our baby and leave a pig in its place. Which I think was probably just started by some, you know, somebody who thought the neighbor's kid was ugly. Yeah, well, and I, uh, I was having a conversation with a former Roman Catholic and he was like, why, why did everyone Lutheran when they talked to me, and, you know, previous to more recently, always kind of vilify Roman Catholicism. I'm like, well, you know, it has its issues, but but his point was is that um, sometimes we only define ourselves by the negative, who we're not, right? So we're not like those guys, and we but we can't say here's what we actually are all about, you know, Jesus Christ, who is for you. <laughs> yeah, and that's a good man. You're just you're carrying the weight of this podcast today. This is Herman Sazi. We've talked about this in the podcast before. Sazi, when he talks about the history of the Reformation and Reformation Lutheranism, points out that Lutherans were always considered the compromisers. We were the guys who would always come and sit down at the table and try and hammer out our differences for the sake of unity. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in the late 19th, early 20th century, that reversed course. And rather than sit down and, and want to talk and try and hammer out our problems, we just decided we'll just adopt the theology of these people that we used to have. Yeah, conflicts with or de- dissent debate with. And then from the ecumenical movement, especially in the early 30s, coming out of the Edinburgh Conference, you see now by the 50s and 60s and 1970s, 
the the ecumenical movement pull, picking up full steam and for our own church body the lutheran church missouri synod you see that reaction against that which mm-hmm. culminates with seminex and everything but it begins back in bod bull in 48 that rather than define ourselves in relation to other christians and try and hammer out compromise in matters of faith we just said we're not that and that's who we are so that our doctrine and our piety our polity too often on a local level or on a uh church body level is so much like you said about what we're not versus what we are. Was that the via negativa? Right. Right. And that the Lutherans, the Reformation Lutherans never denied that the baptism that Roman Catholic priests performed wasn't a legit baptism Mm -hmm. or that their absolution that they pronounced wasn't a legitimate absolution. But as Luther said, it was just hidden under all this gobbledygook. Right. But, but even then, even the gobbledygook, we didn't reject much of that. Just that, that could, that which couldn't be retained without sin. Well, it, it drove people to the gospel. That's the thing. The reason mm-hmm. the Reformation took off is because people were desperate for the gospel. They yeah. didn't know they were desperate for the gospel. They were like Egypt. They were like the Israelites in Egypt. They were crying out. They just didn't know who they were crying out to anymore. Yeah. So they would sing the Agnus Dei in Latin and not know what they were singing. And the Reformation says, oh, actually, this is, these are the words. And here, here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world for you. They literally are. They're in actual fact sheep without a shepherd. Mm-hmm. And that's why Luther says, we don't meet the law with the law. Or even Paul does this in Galatians. I didn't meet Peter's law legality with more legalism. But rather, I just said, you've walked away from the truth of the gospel. That the way in which you greet someone who comes up to you and drops the law on you is to preach the gospel. Yeah that those who are desperate for the gospel don't even know they're crying out for the gospel. They don't need you to tell them some, ex, you know, some exposition, some explanation of what they need. Just <laughs> give them what they need. Don't explain to them how you made the bread. Give them bread. Well, that's the other aspect. I mean, if Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, you know that everyone needs that message. Exactly. Exactly. So who cares if they're creasters or they come every Sunday? <laughs> who cares if you're positive they're going to go to heaven when they die or you're positive they're going to go to hell? Who cares? Preach the gospel. I'm not going to preach to you today because I'm not quite sure you're ready for it yet. <laughs> like, what? Right, exactly. That when you're ready for the gospel, I'll give it to you. What? How? What? Wait. No, that's that's not what anything. No, I'm sorry. That's not the gospel or what the gospels say about the gospel. But you can hold a candle and sing Silent Night with us. So. Right, exactly. <laughs> oh, don't even get me started. Uh, the historical inaccuracies of our Christmas hymns. He's not crying because we have to romanticize that. I mean, that's one of those hymns where it really does it, right? Where it's like all the all the infant Jesus stuff that that's true, that he cries, that he fills his diaper, whatever. We have to get rid of all of that. That's why it's at the end of the service. So we can just eliminate everything that came before that that sounded negative or we didn't like. Turn the lights off, light the candle, sing it, moment of silence. And then if you're a real Lutheran, you have to turn the lights back on so the pastor can dismiss you. <laughs> Because you can't leave without the dismissal. Going well, then you have to sing it again in German, if you know. Oh yes, that whole yes canard. Which German version, though, right? I had an elder about five, six years ago ask if we could sing it in English and German. And actually, <laughs> uh, it was very interesting. They wanted to do an entire church service in German, hmm. and have two Christmas Eve services—one in German and one in English. And I asked, "How many people other than me speak German?" And not even the person asking me spoke German. He just thought it was really pretty sounding. And I said, so you want me to put together two church services, one for a group of people that don't even speak the language because it sounds pretty, and then another one for everybody that does understand the language, and you actually expect people to come to the German service. (laughs) 
And he said, well, I would. And I said, well, we, let's just yeah. do that at your house then. Because yeah. I can preach in German. That's not a problem. The problem is no one's going to come. Hmm. And if they do come, do you expect them all to be able to pronounce German? Hmm. And sing these hymns? And, and what about the sermon? Are they going to be able to understand the sermon? It could be a fun exercise, but I, I don't know if we could. Fun exercise because it, it's, a, it's a good educational exercise for exactly what you're preaching, exactly what you're singing, mm -hmm. what exactly is the purpose of worship. Mm -hmm. Is it to make, again, is it to make you feel good about yourself, to dress up the cross with roses? Yeah. Even though I don't understand a word of what you're saying right now, I just, I feel good. It makes me feel good. I'm now connected to my dead ancestors. Exactly, exactly. Versus yeah. the present tense for you of the gospel, which cannot be communicated unless I speak it in the language that you would understand. Yeah, like the apostles did on Pentecost. I do that sometimes at Pentecost just for fun. I'll say the Lord's Prayer in every language that I know. Mm-hmm. There's a tradition of that for the creed? No, for the gospel reading. Yeah. Just to point yeah. out to people, it sounded great, and you may have understood, recognized that was a Latin word, or you may have recognized that was a German word, but in the end, all you really understood was the amen. <laughs> um, because everything else was not... And this is the point of Paul when he talks about prophecy, is, oh, you prophecy. Is there anybody to interpret that prophecy? Right. Likewise, if you sing a hymn in German or confess the creed in Latin or Spanish or some language you don't understand, do the people that hear you, do they hear that as gospel or are they just hearing sounds? Yeah. Because if they're just hearing sound, no matter what they may feel or think, it's not the gospel. Yeah. It's the four units of that gospel that makes it gospel. Yeah. I mean, a piece that's composed in another language and you want to sing it in the original language, fine. But give us a translation. Give us the text, you know. To this day, it's one of the, the jokes uh, uh, at our anniversary because Annie's good friend that she uh, grew up with, they both were trained professionally as um, to sing arias. Mm, sure. So we had we flew her friend out for our wedding to do a solo, and the their favorite song to sing is Ave Maria. <laughs> so we get married in a Lutheran church, die in the wool LCMS girl, uh, dude who didn't grow up in the church, atheist, and Ave Maria is being sung in Latin right over there, stage left, at this at this wedding ceremony the uh, pastor's like why why ave maria and we're like we well, just like it it's pretty <laughs> and everybody was crying because her the person who sang it the soloist her voice is beautiful and this obviously ave maria is beautiful when it's sung right nobody understood a word of it but everybody was weeping because it was so beautiful now is that gospel no of course not yeah but it made them cry and if your measure of the gospel is does it make you cry does it move you then yeah, by that definition, it is definitely gospel. Yeah. But guess what? If you heard that song a thousand times, I guarantee you at some point you would not cry anymore. Yeah. It's like um, when I get in my car and I plug in my iPhone, the first song in iTunes plays automatically. I know. It drives me crazy. There are songs I used to love that I cannot even stand to hear anymore because of this. Mine's this really obscure Tom Waits song. <laughs> and it's... It, it's like, no, what? I have Ennio Morricone. Uh, I just loaded up with songs that have no English words in them and are just music. And I figure I can't get sick of Ennio Maricone. It's, it's beautiful music. It's haunting. There's no words. And so far, so good. It's been two months. Right. But I'm just afraid I'm going to grow to hate him. And he's one of my favorite composers ever. <laughs> Again, it moves you. But at a certain point, like the pastor who cries every Sunday during the sermon, at some point you stop being moved by it and it becomes yeah. annoying. And then it moves from annoying to loathing. And then it moves from loathing to just hatred. <laughs> just yeah. 
Why did you have to ruin this Black Keys song for me? I used to love this song. Yeah, don't fake it. Don't fake it. Just do it. Just preach the four units of the gospel to the people that have been given to you to preach it to and recognize you're the instrument. The shepherds are the instrument. The magi are the instrument. I get that. I mean, I get Christmas off this year, so I get to receive. Not, I don't have to preach. But the, you know, there's that anxiety on the on Christmas Easter, especially, of like, you know, I got to have a whiz bang of a sermon this year. You know, I got to really, yeah. really reach people. And it's it's exactly like Ave Maria. <laughs> it's like, no, you don't have to put on the performance of a lifetime. That's right. not what's going to make this uh, evocative. It actually, you need just be sensitive to what you say. Looking and around from the pulpit, trying to find a wet eye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost got her. I just a little bit further. I just gotta. I gotta twist this a little bit more. She's yeah. crying. I win. Ah, oh, wonderful. Yes. So everybody goes back to their vocations. They're changed by God's word, but they still have to go back to their vocations. So then, continue with what Dr. Nailgill says, such as God for you, fear him above all else, and from him hear the message. Nothing comes ahead of that message. Nothing is surer than that message. Everything else comes after that message, fits in with that message, is illumined by that fact. You have it on the highest authority that Christ has been born. It is an authority, not of power, but of love. Ho, oh, ho, here we go, baby. Mm-hmm. God is pleased with us. He loves us. Yeah. If, we fully be- if we fully believed that, there's the if of the law. If we fully believed that, then surely our hearts would burst, says Martin Luther. <laughs> I mean, there it is. That's really the thing. Luther hammers on this constantly. Other theologians hammer on this constantly. Our understanding of love and our understanding of authority and power are so skewed to be in conflict with God. Yeah. We see this at Palm Sunday time, obviously, with the triumphant entry, the expectation of who Jesus is as Lord. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. see this with the Jews. We see this with the Romans and the expectation of what does it mean that he's the king of the Jews. Constantly we see this, right, that you are a Christ. You're, you're the son of God. You've come with power and authority. And yet, as I said previously, Philippians 2, Paul nails it. Even though mm-hmm. he was equal with God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but gave it up. That, as Jesus says, I yeah. could tell the angels to come. And they would destroy all of you. But I'm not going to because I gave up that authority. Only the Father can send the angels. I gave up that authority. I gave yeah. up the authority to see when the last day is. I gave up the authority to escape my fate, my destiny. I gave up all that authority when I became this man. For you, by the way. <laughs> mm-hmm. The whole reason I'm kneeling before you is for you. The whole reason that I suffer is for you. The whole reason that you're weeping that I didn't come sooner to, to save your brother is because I came for you. The reason that all those those children in Jerusalem had to be murdered is because I came for you. And your understanding yeah. of authority, if Herod had understood that God's true power is in love, would Herod hmm. have murdered those children? If no. Right. If the Jewish no. religious authorities just looked at Jesus as some hippy-dippy self-help guru, would they have been so driven to have him executed at the cost of committing blasphemy by saying we have no king except for Caesar? No, of course not. Well, maybe. I mean, we're selfish. Yeah, I think there's a way you can still reject love, right? That you don't want to be loved. Right. Kim Jong-un has his own brother murdered in a subway station. Hmm. And there's like, I didn't, I, I, I didn't know anything about that. I don't know where she got that, that toxic gas chemical that she put on that hanky. What you can see on YouTube, by the way, I just saw that this week. This woman just walks up behind Kim Jong-un's brother. He turns around. She wipes his face with this cloth, and 20 minutes later, he's dead. It's crazy. What's even crazier is he had the antidote in his backpack. 
That's what's crazy. He knew he was going to get it. He knew they were coming after him. He knew his brother was trying to kill him. He had the antidote in his backpack. She comes up to him, wipes it on his face. He turns around. He's telling people, this woman just put something on my face. 20 minutes later, he's dead. Yeah. Even though he's trying to escape his brother. He doesn't want to go back to North Korea. He doesn't want to be the next <laughs> dictator in chief. He just wants to get the heck away from this guy because he knows his brother's a homicidal maniac. He's already killed a whole bunch of other people in his family. Hmm. What does Herod do as soon as the Magi leave? <laughs> Starts worrying, plotting. You know that Joseph Stalin had Hitler dug up over 20 times? Uh, no, I did not know that. Yeah, true story. So the Russians were the ones who discovered the bodies and took them, supposedly, according to photographic photographs and, and documents. And Stalin was so insane. He was so paranoid about Hitler coming back or that Hitler wasn't really dead, that he was constantly sending, like literally every six months, six to nine months, he would just send someone out to dig the body up, make sure the bones were still there, and then rebury it. And now, the bones are in the Kremlin. So if you want to know where Hitler's final resting place is, he's in the basement of the Kremlin. Oh, fun. In a box with all of his other stuff. Yeah. Been there. Yeah. Didn't see it. That's the human heart in a nutshell, though. That's the human heart in a nutshell. That our understanding of love is always attached to, like we were talked about in regards to Christmas. It's a, it's attached to the power, the value of... That he can be born, that he did become man because he had this, because it's so impressive. That he does empower and enable us to live a victorious life now, right? We can measure our Christianity by our successes and our failures, our blessings and our curses. And all of those things, of course, have to be open and out in public so that we can see them, we can measure each other according to them. But as one, who was it who said comparison is the thief of joy? I have no idea. Sounds nice. <laughs> I don't know. This is, the pro- this is the problem when you're on the internet so much is that you read all this great stuff, but you forget to uh, memorize who said it. Uh, from Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, of course. The greatest. I love that man. Cause jujitsu. There you go. Oh, yeah, he was a fighter. He was, big time. Grew up, he's a wonderful story. Grew up an asthmatic. Grew up a weakling, four-eyed. All that stuff was picked on and bullied. Uh, and uh, motivated. Motivated him. Motivated mm-hmm. him. Again, you nerf the world, you don't get Theodore Roosevelt's. You get Donald Trump's. I'm just saying. That's all I'm saying. Instead of Theodore Roosevelt with jiu-jitsu and national parks and charging up hills with the army, you get 12 cans of Diet Coke and eight hours of TV and an Oompa Loompa and Twitter. collection. And Twitter feed. Again, I'm not. If you voted for him, God bless you. I'm not knocking President Trump. He's he's what God gave us as our leader. I'm just pointing out, in comparison to Theodore Roosevelt, Donald Trump is no Theodore Roosevelt. Nobody is actually. That's why I love Theodore Roosevelt. He's my favorite president. Hmm. But he's also dead, so it's easy for me to. Uh... <laughs> yeah, we can romanticize that too. He was a man. Let's put it that way. He was a sinner. But to this point, then, it is, on a, it is an authority, not of power, but of love that God is pleased with us. Love in the sense of charis, caritas, charity, selfless love, self-giving love. And this is, I talked with our friend, Pastor Eric Brown, about this. By the way, go listen to the Gospel Boldly podcast, Pastor Eric Brown, and the great and wonderful and creative uh, producer over there who uh, makes mm-hmm. our commercial for us, our bump. Thomas. Our Darth yep. Vader bump, uh, which is wonderful, Mr. Lemke. And uh, go listen to that. Go check that out. That's some good stuff over there. It's good exegesis for you. But I was talking with uh, Pastor Brown about this, that rather than translate that word as love in the Bible, we'd be better off translating it as charity because love in our cultural context is so heavily weighted in the direction of 
sappy, pappy, kind of, I don't even, passive aggressive kind of love, or it's erotic love. And we've talked about this on previous podcasts, the, the idea, just the idea, not even the fact of it, but the idea that two men can be intimate friends platonically in our society today. It's people, I've actually had people laugh at me. I'm not kidding. I've had people laugh at me when I say I have intimate male friends who are just platonic. Yeah, as if that's not possible anymore or something, right? So when you read love, love your neighbor as yourself, we either translate that as some sort of erotic love, but we as Christians don't do that. So then we as Christians have to struggle to kind of suss out and define what exactly does the Bible mean by love? Because we know the Bible is not talking about erotic love, lusty love. It's talking about a different kind of love, selfless love. But it really is talking about charity in the sense of yeah. self-giving, selfless love. Love as Christ yeah. first loved us. Yeah. And I think to protect ourselves, we tend to leave it as just love because that's open for interpretation. Versus charity, which is not. Right. Charity works uh, really well because in light of Christ, he gives up everything for us it's it's the the authority of god the authority of the gospel the authority of jesus is the authority of charity mm. it's it's so counterintuitive to our understanding of power that we kill him over it <laughs> that's how offensive it is to us a truly charitable think about it in the present context especially with social media when anybody comes out as having done anything charitable or good for someone else we automatically start digging around to find out what their true motive is because we look at it and go, mm, no, that, that yeah. can't be for real. There's got to be some that. ulterior That's motive, right. some subtext here that we're not seeing. It's got to mm -hmm. be about manipulation or, or you're hunting for something. You're trying to get something out of them. That there's no such thing as true charity. Because even charitable organizations have been exposed over the years as being not charitable organizations and then, you know, a scam. Misappropriating funds, spending 80% mm -hmm. of the money on administrative costs and 20% and on the actual people who need it. This is the world we live in, a world of sin and death, corruption, an understanding of power that is all right-handed, straight wind, hurricane, knock over your enemy, kill him before mm -hmm. he kills you, don't leave your enemy alive on the battlefield, sun suit, art of war kind of stuff, yeah. versus charity, which is, because I just saw that dumpster fire of a movie, The Last Jedi, <gasps> he did not just say that. Yes, I really he said did. that. Um we can disagree on this point, but that's all right. That's fine. It's not a dumpster fire. I just, I strongly disliked it. Um, you got hung up on the SJW stuff, I, the, yeah. the, the overt feminism being shoved down my throat. Yeah. I, I, and I don't even think that was third act. I think they set you up in the first act for it, but whatever. But it, the whole Finn sub, the whole Finn storyline was so worthless. It was such mm -hmm. a shoehorned in, we got to make this guy important to the storyline. Deus, mm -hmm. he, Finn should just have been called Deus Ex Machina because his only mm -hmm. purpose in the Star Wars trilogy is we, we needed a guy of color and he's just here to move the plot forward. But this is really about Ray yeah. and all the other. I do look forward to him in uh, in the Pacific Rim uh, sequel. Yeah, I think he can pull that off. Truly selfless love is Obi-Wan. If you <laughs> kill me, I will become even more powerful than ever. Mm -hmm. That truly char charity is you don't leave the enemy alive on the battlefield, you kill them. Selfless love is you let your enemy kill you, mm -hmm. which is a rough one for sure. Uh, because where do you distinguish between allowing your enemy to kill you versus protecting your neighbor, treating, yeah. loving your neighbors yourself, right? You can only do that if you believe the resurrection. 
Exactly, exactly. And, and we have this conversation a lot because I'm a father and a husband. And if you mm -hmm. tried to hurt my kid, I would kill you. I'm, a tr I'm trained to kill people who try and hurt my family. That's a fact. So I can kill you and then I can go get absolution because I'm also a pastor. <laughs> and I'm constantly, constantly in conversation about that tension in my own personal life. That I train to fight and I learn how to kill people so that I never have to get in a fight and never have to do that. And yet, if pushed, I can. Mm -hmm. I didn't do it for self-glorification. I mean, that's one aspect of it. But the longer that I train, the less I'm in it for the glory and the more I'm in it to be a better person. First article gifts kind of thing. Yeah. That I want to be a better husband, a better father. I want to be a better pastor. I want to be a better neighbor. And this is how this is happening for me. And this is what makes me and hammers me into this, this person that I want to be for my neighbor because I want mm -hmm. to be more loving. Right. I want to be more charitable. I want to be less about me and more about you. And mm -hmm. the only way that I know how to do that is to find a situation where I'm sucked out of myself. I'm ripped out of my own head and I'm ripped out of thinking and worrying about myself and I'm only thinking about the other person. And for me, we talked about this in the last podcast, but this is my, this is my point of reference. This is why I talk about this stuff for myself. This is my point of reference. This is what I do every day. Um, if I played chess every day, I talk about chess all the time. Mm -hmm. you know, if I was in a band, I would, everything would be in a music analogy, but this is what I do. I'm a, I'm a dad, I'm a pastor and I'm a fighter. Those are the three things I do every day. It's all I do every day. Mm -hmm. The understanding of love that I walk away from training with is not, I need to wipe you off the face of the planet because I can. That's not love. That's wrath. Mm -hmm. But rather now that I know who I am, I've been shown who I am. In fact, both internally and externally. Now I'm free to be present for you because I know who I am and I'm free to love you as I would want you to love me because I don't have to have these hangups and worry about whether you're judging me or what you think of me or what your opinion is of me. I don't care what your opinion is of me because I know who I am and I know what the gospel is and who it's for. I know I'm a baptized child of God. That frees you up like we just talked about in regards to the sermon. The shepherds go back to their sheep. I go back to my family. I go back to my flock. I go back to my training partners. The word of God has changed my heart and that in my vocation, that's where I'm crucified so that I can be more open to the gospel. I can be more charitable, more faithful. And if all you do is sit around in a monastery in your room, meditating on love, trying to put it together, pondering in your heart what it means to love your neighbors yourself, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. If you're sitting in your office in front of your computer on Facebook or Twitter, you're doing it wrong. I'm sorry. That's, it's just a, I'm, I'm going to argue it's a fact. You are not loving your neighbor by being on social media. To love your neighbor fully, I said, you're not loving your neighbor fully. How's that? I'll give you that. Yeah, that. yeah it may even be the opposite, right? I'm... But it, it, it pulls you away from the very real concrete interactions and interpersonal relationships. For example, whether you're a husband, a father, a student, a daughter, a grandparent, a teacher, a student, whatever you may be. Your interactions with people, you're sent into a vocation, and your vocation is not to sit in front of a computer in an office and comment on people's tweets. Yeah, It's to get out of your office, to get out of your own head, and to go and love people. It's just that simple. <laughs> and it's not forced. This is the purpose of vocation. Again, the shepherds are not sent off on a quest to love. They're sent back to their sheep. Go love your sheep. Mm -hmm. Go love each other. Go love your neighbor, because you know what those sheep provide? Wool. Those sheep provide food mm -hmm. for your neighbor. Your neighbor needs you to shepherd those sheep. Your sheep need you to shepherd them, to protect them from the wolves. That's your vocation. Go do it. But now you get to go do it in light of the fact that you've seen 
the birth of the Word of God. You've seen your Savior. So now you know for a fact what you're doing is blessed by God. Yeah. It's a godly vocation. So you don't have to worry about whether you should you know, think about going back to community college and getting a degree. You should be an electrician now and not be a shepherd. No. Do your job. Do your vocation. And now you get to do it in the freedom of the gospel. Mm-hmm. That everything you do in faith, as Dr. Luther says, is worship of God. Sure. Well, there's so much external judgment, right? Uh, judgment of others, or even internal monologue. Um, I had a conversation yesterday with a you know a young person, and she's she's going back to going back to school. She quit her job, and she's living with her parents. She's going back to school to get a generic bachelor's degree, and it was just why? Because everyone else is telling me I need to. <laughs> Okay, uh, what are you going to do? I mean, well, I'm doing temp work. I said, well, keep doing temp work. You don't have to go get the degree. Do temp work. Find what, you know, find your passions. Exactly, because it's not a question of what other people tell you they think you should do. It's a question of what's your vocation? What has God given you to do? Mm -hmm. And listening to a whole bunch of people tell you what would make them happy is not necessarily your vocation. You You are not a garbage can for other people's emotions. That's right. You're not a Trojan horse for other people's agendas. And yeah. too often, I think we get, especially I think as conservative Christians, we get caught up in over, being overly concerned with what people think about us. Hmm. Because we think, well, if I don't listen and do what they tell me, I'm not being a good Christian. I'm not loving. And the fact of the matter is, it's not loving at all to listen to a whole bunch of people's opinion mm-hmm. and just go do it without thinking critically about, well, is that really the best way for me to love? Is that the vocation to which God's called me? Or is that the vocation that they want me to serve in? Yeah. It's like I tell a story when I was in college, all of our, the group of friends that I, I ran with, we all basically agreed and we never had a meeting. We just basically agreed kind of organically. None of us could have the same job because hmm. every person had to have a job that benefited the group. Oh, I got you. One of my friends worked in, he was a, he was a waiter at a bar. Our favorite bar, actually. We we told him to apply at our favorite bar so that we could get free drinks there. I managed a restaurant, uh, an Italian restaurant, pizza restaurant, so they could come and eat for free. Another friend worked at Dairy Queen, so we got Dairy Queen for free. Another person worked, that's what we did, you know, and it was awesome. You created this, it's almost like a commune or something like that, right? It's very, it was very hipster millennial before there was such a thing as hipster millennials. <laughs> but it was just a point of, what is the advantage? What is the benefit of your job if it doesn't benefit the rest of us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially if you have to work when we're not working. How can you hang out with us and how can we do what we do and you're working and we're not working? So we all have to work the same schedule, same hours. And mm. we did. It was amazing. I can't believe we all figured it out. Mm. But that in a secular sense is what Dr. Nagel's after, what Dr. Luther's after, which is the authority of the gospel is the authority to love selflessly not selfishly. Or as my doctor father said, we're not freed from our neighbor, we're freed for our neighbor. Right. But too yeah, often for... when we hear the, the words of absolution, we think, oh, good. Now I don't have to bother with you people for another week. Hmm. Versus, no, actually, not only do you have to bother with these people, but you have to carry their crosses with them. You have to bear them. Yeah. That's the reason why uh, folks have such a hard time confessing uh, and declaring forgiveness, because it doesn't, it doesn't set you apart. It, it actually brings you together. <laughs> exactly. Right. It doesn't change you mm-hmm. in the sense of, oh, I feel so much lighter now. I don't carry that guilt around with me, that burden. You're right. You don't. Now you're going to carry their burden and they're going to carry yours. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. if you don't yeah, understand how this works, look at the Christ child in the feeding trough. What do you, there's a baby 
whatever he is, eight pounds, seven ounce baby with his golden baby Jesus with his golden <laughs> diaper. And uh, shout out to Ricky Bobby. And um, yep. why is he there? He's not there for him. Do you, do you think the master of the universe wants to be swaddled? No, of course not. Mm -hmm. But he chooses to do that freely for us. That's the gift. He is our yeah. gift. And so that's, that's really the direction of Christmas is the direction of this baby that's swaddled in this feed trough is not doing any of this for himself. He's doing it for the woman who's holding him and swaddling him and feeding him at her breast. He's doing it for the man who tried to divorce her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he, he did it quietly. It was, you know, he was a gentleman about it. <laughs> he did it for the stupid disciples he chooses. He did it for the governor who signs off on his execution. He does it for the religious leaders who renounce him. He does it mm -hmm. for the whole world. Mm -hmm. And that's love. That's yeah. true power, according to, the, according to God, according to the Bible. That's true power. It's mm -hmm. just antithetical to every single definition that we have ever come up with for power. Yeah, power, power is made perfect in weakness, right? And, and Dr. Walther, C.F.W. Walther, says this in the Law Gospel Lectures, the, or maybe it's in, on the ministry. Maybe it's on the ministry. But he points out the only authority a pastor has is the gospel. Mm -hmm. And that when the congregation refuses to hear the gospel, the pastor loses all authority. That, but he points out the only authority a pastor has is the gospel. Mm -hmm. And that when yeah. that the gospel is the authority of God in the congregation, and that that pastor is the instrument of that authority. So if you say to the pastor, we don't want to hear the gospel anymore, you've stripped the pastor of his authority. Yeah. But how many pastors do you and I, I've done this myself. How many pastors do we know and that we have committed ourselves? We don't double down on the gospel when we get in trouble. When we feel like we're losing control of a person or a congregation or the congregation as a whole, or they vote a way that we don't like, or they come up to you and say, let's have a German service this year instead. How many of us just double down on the law and yeah. begin lecturing them that the problem is ignorance, not you need more gospel. Mm -hmm. We all fall into that trap. We're human. We're sinful. That's what we do. Yeah. Well, it's easy for us to preach that message because we already know it and they already know it. And so we're, yeah, tell me something I don't already know. <laughs> right, exactly. It's, I can write a sermon that's 99% law. That's easy. I can, mm -hmm. I can preach law that will peel paint off the walls. I've done it. Mm -hmm. Preaching 99% gospel, that's a challenge. Yeah. That's a sermon that I'm going to have to really grind on. Yeah. If someone asks, why am I so gospel crazy? Well, that's the reason why, because I'm terrible at preaching the gospel. Mm -hmm. I, I can preach the law. I can, I can tear you down. I can strip you naked. I can make you bloody and raw with the law. But to give you the sweet, the sweet comfort of the gospel, especially as a pastor, that's the challenge. Yeah, it's like trying to grab a cloud or something, right? And it just it keeps slipping through your fingers. You just 100%. can't. Can't quite get our heads around exactly how is this true? I mean, how can I say this? It is. It's like trying to gram Gramby into a double outside Oshie into a, a straight ankle lock. Nice reference. I'm assuming that's yeah. Um, just messing around. <laughs> so God is pleased with us. He loves us. If we fully believed that, then surely our hearts would burst, says Martin Luther. Quote: Born in us today. Born in us today. Yes, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me out of refusing to be loved so much. I really do think that, in a nutshell, is why we reject the gospel. I think that's why we romanticize the gospel at Christmas and Easter time. I think that's why people don't come to church on Good Friday. They come on, on Easter. 
I think that's why we double down on the law, triple down on the law, that we would rather talk about third use of the law, sanctification, obeying the commandments. We'd rather talk about that than the gospel. Yeah. We'd rather talk about it than preach it. Because in the end, what we're saying is, I refuse to be loved that much. Hmm. And I refuse to allow anybody else around me to be loved that much too. Mm -hmm. Because that's, yeah. the, that's the gospel in a nutshell is, you can't be loved too much by God, and you can't love your neighbor too much. Because you yourself, if you really were honest, would say, how much is too much love? How much, how much, when, when do you say to your children, you know what, I, I, I've got enough love from you. How, how often do wife and husband say to each other, you know what, I'm really sick of the love that you're giving me. Yeah. Yeah, he just gave me a hug like 10 minutes ago. I don't need another one. It's fine. Just be more abusive. Just all the way, you know. Valentine's Day isn't as special when you're this loving all year round. That's right. Or, or how many, how many students say to their teachers, you know what, we're really sick of Christmas break. If you could just give us maybe like the weekend, so we can go to church. But otherwise, I mean, two weeks of Christmas break—that's ridiculous. And by the way, yeah. I used to get a month for Christmas break. I don't know what happened, but <laughs> I don't know what happened. Either. It's disgusting that kids get so little break. Hmm. It's crazy. But it's that, in a nutshell, is how the old Adam hears the gospel, which is the prayer of the old Adam is, help me out of being loved so much. The prayer of the new man in Christ is, help me out of refusing to be loved so much. Right. In the end, and this is such an important point, all of our sin, all of our conflict and rebellion against God, against his law, against the gospel, our fighting with the Holy Spirit is all wrapped up, its root, if you follow that that um, that shoelace mm -hmm. through that knot, that big ball of confusion, what you'll find is we just refuse to be loved that much. That's that's the 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 dumbness of sin <laughs> is that yeah. when faced with a, a limitless ocean of love and compassion and forgiveness, we go. I tell you what, I'll go in up to my waist, but I'm not quite sure what's out there, and I don't really know how to swim that well, and there might be a riptide or a current, I'm not so sure, and yeah, I know you told me it's safe, but <laughs> I don't really want to take that chance. Yeah. Until you're looking down into a six-by-six six hole in the ground. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, that limitless gospel, it doesn't sound like such a bad deal anymore. But that's that's the... That's the trouble for me as a pastor is that I know so many people like that, that yeah. I have to say to them, I know you don't want to come right now because you don't think it matters, but everybody gets to hear me preach the gospel eventually. It's hmm. just whether your feet are under you or whether they're facing my pulpit. Yeah, and that's something. Yeah, but you're going to get the gospel preached to you one way or the other. Uh, and the reason is because you refuse to be loved. Hmm. You just refuse to be loved by God. Which is why I think we, we would rather talk about doing the works of the law and obeying the law than actually talking about love. Even though love is the sum of the whole law. Love God, love your neighbor. Jesus actually said that. And I've had this conversation countless times. When someone says, well, what about the command? Okay, what about love? Yeah. Well, what does love have to do with command? Well, Jesus said that the sum of the law is love God and love your neighbor. So how is this loving your neighbor, what you're saying or what you're suggesting or what you're doing? Well, you know, you don't understand. He or she isn't doing what they're supposed to do. And therefore, I'm justified when I do this. No, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say you love your neighbor so long as you're justified in loving your neighbor or your neighbor mm -hmm. deserves it. Jesus says, love your enemies. Yeah. <laughs> that 
that's the point, that we are loved and that the gospel is spoken to us and the gifts are delivered to us so that we are freed up to love our neighbor, that we can look at the fourth commandment. And even though we may not like our parents or respect our parents, <laughs> or we may even hate and loathe our parents for what they've done to us, whatever that may be, we still have to suss out and figure out how can I love this person yeah. in spite of themselves and in spite of what they've done or said to me? How, what is that? What does that love look like? And sometimes, in my opinion, sometimes that love may include, I can't talk to you right now because I have nothing in my heart but hate yeah. for you. And yet I will pray and I will beg the Lord to relieve me of this hatred or this, I can't forgive you. And so I'm going to pray that this be lifted off of me because I don't want to carry around this cancerous tumor inside of me. That is this hatred, this loathing, this revulsion toward you. And so, because why? Because I've been loved so much and I don't want you to die or I don't want you to go away knowing or thinking there's no, there's no forgiveness for you. Because if my heart, it's like Psalm 19 says that really the psalmist is praying, don't, don't allow my great trespasses and don't allow the way that I run my mouth and don't allow the, the way that my heart wants what it wants influence you declaring me righteous. <laughs> but rather free me from that, that that's our natural direction. Our natural tendency is toward self-righteousness and toward aggression, toward a grasping after power because we want more control, we want more influence, and we'll pick and choose who we love and who we don't love, who we forgive and who right. we don't forgive, all that stuff. Versus, no, all of that is simply a, a wrestling match between two sinners trying to decide for God mm -hmm. who deserves to be loved. How much is too much? How much is too little? And on Christmas, bringing it around full circle, the expectation of the pastor is we need you to tell everybody here that God loves them just the way they are, which is absolute and utter horse manure. <laughs> yeah, it's completely upside down. If God loved you the way you are, you wouldn't need Jesus. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Look at the manger. Do you see the baby? Uh, then there's nothing redeeming about you. There's nothing redeemable about you. That Jesus is your redemption. He is full redemption price. Hmm. So help me out of refusing to be loved so much. That is the sinner's, that's the new man in Christ prayer. Help me mm -hmm. out of refusing to be loved so much. Let your body and your blood have their way with me. So I know how incredibly you join me and love me to death. And by your death, win forgiveness for me, who is accepted, embraced, and joined with you. Yeah. That's a mic drop. Isn't that something? <laughs> Let your body and blood have their way with me, so I know how incredibly you join me and love me to death. And by your death, win forgiveness for me, who is, on account of your dying and rising for me, accepted, embraced, and joined with you. Yeah, I love the way that Nagel um, kind of confesses what faith is, you know, to let, to let uh, Christ have his way with you, right? It, it's to get out of the way. Uh, to love you, know. you to death. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, so maybe this is kind of the uh, admonition of Christmas for us, right? Is to to just to listen and to receive and not get hung up on. Well, that wasn't quite the special Christmas I had hoped for. <laughs> right, it wasn't as great. You remember that Christmas three years ago? That was great. We we really need to try and whatever you did that Christmas three years ago, Pastor. We really got to do that again. Mm -hmm. I had that actual conversation where I pointed out that we sing the same hymns every year at Christmas time. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't. They didn't ship them up because I have to. I'm in bondage to my congregation, <laughs> so we have to sing. What child is this? And oh, you know all those different things. Silent night. Yeah. And my job as pastor is just to smuggle in the gospel to all mm-hmm. the sentimental cliches, platitudes, romantic ideas that people have that come in. My job mm-hmm. is to smuggle Jesus into them. As we've talked about yeah. in previous podcast, you came to show something to God, and He just decided to preach the gospel to you. And yeah that it was the same service that, that we had three years ago. The only difference is you are. You're different. The hymns uh-huh. are the same. The gospel is the same. Everything's the same. Even the candles we use are still the same candles we had three years ago. The only thing that's changed is you. And whether yeah. it's a permanent change or whether you're just in a different mood tonight than you were three years ago, I don't know. That's not up to me. Go back and listen to our podcast on Walther, Law and Gospel. Only the Holy Spirit can distinguish Law and Gospel for us. My job is just to show up and deliver the goods. Unto you a child is born. Well, yeah, and as a, as a preacher, the only thing that isn't a moving target is the gospel. <laughs> Everything else, you, you have no idea what's going to land, what's going to hit home, what's going to resonate, you know, because you don't know where people are. Don't try and pretty it up. Don't try and wow the congregation. Mm-hmm. Just do your job, <laughs> right? That's kind of the point of this entire sermon text we just quoted from, chap- or from page 31 of Nagel's Christmas sermon in his book of sermons is, the shepherds go back to shepherding. The magi go back to magiing. Mary goes mm-hmm. back to mothering. Joseph goes back to Josephing. We go back to pastoring. You go back to whatever your vocation is at. And that's the point of the gospel, is that you are loved. You are accepted and embraced and joined with Christ so that you are free to go back to your vocation, whether you feel like it or not, whether you're happy, sad, angry, completely apathetic, it doesn't matter. I was talking with my friend about this this morning, um, that... This is. I didn't really understand what discipline was until very recently. Mm. I thought I understood discipline. Mm. Discipline is doing what you know you need to do, even when you don't feel like doing it. Yeah. Well, what did you think of it before? Like restraining the old Adam kind of thing? Yeah, discipline in the sense of uh, doing something to subdue yourself. To Oh, yeah, to beat down the flesh or whatever. Beat down right. your flesh, whether it be doing something to tame your, your thoughts or your body or your emotion, whatever it was, going through counseling because you can't control your emotions or whatever. Versus, no, there are a lot of days, especially in the wintertime, especially when you have all these responsibilities that I say to myself, I do I really want to drive 45 minutes to train for two and a half hours and then drive another 45 minutes home and get home at, 8.15, 8.30 at night and eat late and go to sleep and get up at 6 o'clock the next morning and do it all over again. <laughs> can't I just take it easy. Yeah, I can because that's what I feel like doing. But I know if I go, it's it's what I need to do because it will make me better. And I know I feel, not only will I feel better, uh, but I'll think more clearly. I'll be more content as a person. I'll be more relaxed. I'll be more satisfied. And therefore, as a consequence, I'll be more open to my vocation, serving in my vocations. And that the way I feel will often drag me away from my vocations because my feelings are like wild monkeys (laughs) and they, they go where they go and do what they do and you can't control those things. So today you're all gung ho to do that thing you love. And tomorrow you just decide you're not going to. And the point is no one cares about your feelings (laughs) that you got to get up and just do it. Nike, whoever wrote, whoever came up with the Just Do It campaign is probably the greatest advertiser huh. in the history of advertisers because it just do it. Just do it. Yeah. Yeah. Whether you want to or not, whether you like it or not, whether you feel like it or not, 
Whether your mind's right or not, just do it. Get up and run. Don't think about running. Run. Go for a hike. Read a book. Do whatever it is. Whatever it is that opens you up to be more loving, more charitable towards your neighbor, do it. Yeah. Do it. And yeah, it's going to hurt. It's going to cause you trouble. It's going to afflict you. We talked about this in the last pad, in the last podcast that to to struggle and suffer for the sake of the neighbor, to suffer and struggle for the sake of love. Or my wife and I were talking about this last night. There are, are countless people, family, friends, doesn't matter. There are countless people who will love you in a transactional way. They will love you conditionally based on mm. what can I do for you and what will you do for me in the form of repayment. There are very few people, very few, that you will meet in your entire life that love you unconditionally. And Dr. Nagel explains it this way. Unconditional love, the definition of unconditional love is you suffer yourself to be rejected. That this is truly why Jesus dies on the cross, because he suffers himself to be rejected by us. That only true love, only unconditional love, true power, will allow itself to be rejected in order to love the beloved. It actually risks having the beloved hate rather than love. And that's a, that's a scary proposition. That's terrifying to consider that you might give someone your love, your, be selfless, be open, and have that rejected or have that used for and twisted up and abused. That's a terrifying thing to consider, yeah. especially, again, as you get older and you gain more experience and maturity and you are hurt more often than not, it's easy to fold up and say, I'm not going to love people anymore. I'm not going to open myself up to being hurt that way rather than, no, it's just what people do. Yeah, they're sinners. Yeah. That's what sinners do to each other. They hurt each other. It's yeah. our romantic idealism of love that causes us to shut down because we think that if we give love, we should be have love returned. Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe that's what discipline is: is learning how to be rejected. <laughs> if you go up and hug yeah. a lion, don't expect the lion to hug you back. <laughs> it's a lion; it eats you. That's what lions do when a dummy mm -hmm. walks up to it and hugs it. It's like that guy, the the grizzly man, or yeah, grizzly man. Oh yeah. There's a book about it. There's a documentary made about him too. He moved up to Alaska to live with the bears, and then eventually the bears ate him. Because yeah, because that's what bears do. He he saw he literally self-identified as a bear. And the bears, and one day a bear went, "You're not a bear," <laughs> and that bear ate him. Period. Hmm. That's the way it works. Um, but it's for me, it's a good analogy. It's a good example that just because you give someone love doesn't mean they're going to love you back. And they're never, ever right. going to love you back the way that you want them to love you back. Because that's, <laughs> you can communicate it, but even that's very limited, how you translate your, your imagination and the way that you think you ought to be loved. And that way, too, then, you come into church on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, you come into church the rest of the year, and you have an expectation of what love is or how you expect to be loved not only by the people at church, but by your pastor, not just by your pastor, but how you want your pastor to express that in the sermon or in the hymns or in the liturgy. And eventually, probably quicker, sooner than later, your expectations are going to be contradicted. Right. Uh, because I can't possibly understand what you mean. And by the way, I have more than one person who expects me to love them in a particular way. Right. We were talking about this earlier with opinions, people telling you this is the job you should have. Well, uh -huh. many, you think that's bad. Ask 20 people how you can love them better mm. and uh, get ready to write down 20 different answers. That's right. And yeah. so all you can do in the end is love your neighbors yourself and ask yourself the question, if I was in a ditch, 
and I was stripped naked and bleeding, I had been robbed. What would I want someone to do for me? Would I want someone yeah. to get down in the ditch and help carry me out? Would I want them to walk by on the other side of the road and judge me? Would I want them to point a finger and laugh at me or say, well, if you're in the ditch, you probably deserved it? No, I would want you to get down in the ditch and carry me out. Therefore, when I walk by and I see my neighbor in the ditch, I'm going to get down in the ditch, regardless of what everybody else on the road says. Yeah. Well, that's precisely because, you know, in Christ we see, we don't have to make up a definition of what love is. He, he shows us precisely. Right. Because when we look in the ditch, we don't see our neighbor. We see Christ in our neighbor. Mm-hmm. This is what Luther points out in that fa- the, the Nagel quote, that Jesus is born in us today. Yeah. That in faith, it's not just a historical occurrence that happened 2,000 years ago, but in faith, Jesus is born in us today. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, as the Apostle Paul writes. That yes, on the one hand, I do see my neighbor in the ditch, but on the other hand, in faith, I see Christ in my neighbor. That it's not my neighbor who's in the ditch, it's Christ who's in the ditch. And that when I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me, and so forth. I don't believe I'm bringing Jesus to my neighbor in the ditch. I believe Jesus is my neighbor in the ditch. Hmm. And so even if I hate you with just a white-hot rage that I would love to see you wiped from the face of the earth, if I see you fallen and in a ditch, faith still recognizes my enemy as Christ. That I'm not just treating this man as my enemy or this woman as my enemy. I'm treating Christ as my enemy because he died for this person. And if Jesus died for this man or this woman, as much as I may hate them and revile them and want to see them snuffed out of existence, Jesus shed his blood for this person. And so if Jesus decided this person's worth dying for, maybe I need to rethink exactly what what it is that I'm feeling or thinking about this person. Because maybe it's not so much that I hate him or her. Maybe there's something about them that shows me myself. And that my hatred yeah. isn't directed at them, but it's, it's hatred directed at God because he loves me too much. And I don't think I deserve yeah. that kind of love. Or I don't think Jesus loves me enough. And the love that I want Jesus to show me is I want a brand new Cadillac. <laughs> I want a fat bank account. I want a penthouse suite. Whatever it may be. This is how the old Adam tries to control the gospel. Do that. Go see uh, Go see the, the Last Jedi. Make up your own mind. Don't listen to me. Apologies for the spoiler. And... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if if you just approach it as escapism, it's fine. That's true. It's fine. It's full of all the all the escapist nonsense. Well, actually, that people go to social media for. <laughs> I read an interesting article this morning written by a millennial. This millennial said Gen Xers just let it die. And and what what he's yeah. pointing out is that really this new Star Wars trilogy, this one more than the Clone Wars, this new trilogy is essentially you got to move on, dude. Like. <laughs> Like, the characters that you grew up with, Han Solo, Princess Leia, Luke Skywalker, Chewbacca, so forth and so on, uh, they're yours, but we need a new story. We need to move this forward because we're those aren't our heroes. We didn't grow up with them. So we need our own uh-huh. R2-D2 and C-3PO. We need our BB-8. So you may think, old man, that BB-8 is gross and annoying and is just a cash grab, but go back to eight-year-old Donovan Riley watching Star Wars and what did Donovan Riley think about R2-D2? I've got to have or that toy. Porgs or Ewoks or whatever, right? Please don't bring up. No, let's not bring up. I mean, Ewoks. What about Jar Jar? Okay. Oh, Jar Jar. Oh, speaking of dumpster fires. Um, but that that's just, this is really the point that I think a lot of my negativity, social justice warrior platform, propaganda agenda stuff aside, is having to walk out and go, this is for my kids. This isn't for me. That 
my kids still love the unedited theatrical version of the original Star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but, and they hate the Clone Wars, as I pointed out, which I, I'm so thankful for. But that for my kids, The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi are their movies. My 14-year-old son loves those two movies. In fact, I like Rogue One more than all the other new movies. I love Rogue One uh, because everybody dies in the end, <laughs> which is just that's, just, that's why I like Cormac McCarthy novels too. But that's just my character. But for me, yeah, it's, I'm not going to the movies to have that itch tickled, but rather to take my kids so that they grew up with that, that this is theirs. And God willing, when my kids are 46, they're going to be complaining about the next trilogy of Star Wars movies. Right. That they're not, these, these are not my characters. This is not Finn. Yeah, but for me, that died with episode two. I mean, one, I had high hopes that it would be that, and it wasn't, you know. Yeah. Well, I think that's why Rogue One's so appealing to me is because it's self-contained. Yeah, and it's repristinating, too. <laughs> right. It's a self-contained story. It's not, hey, let's put Princess Leia in, well, except, yeah, except for the end of Rogue One, and you know, we'll, we'll just overlook yeah. the really gross CGI. <laughs> just like, oh, you're a plastic doll. Ooh. She almost looks like a tender, like a precious moments doll. She's almost Creepy. there. The eyes are so big, but um, big eyes, small mouth, anime. But um, anyways, no, go see it and enjoy it for what it is, and uh, mm-hmm. and Merry Christmas, and have a Merry Christmas. Exactly, I I command you, I demand that you have a good Christmas. No, I'm just teasing, but uh, no, go check out Doctor Nagel's Christmas sermon if you have the selected sermons of Norman Nagel. If not, uh, you can go back and listen to this podcast over and over again. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't advise it. It's not safe for your mental or emotional health and well-being. No. But, you know, uh, subscribe, please. Subscribe. Uh, leave positive reviews for us so that we get more, uh, what do you want to say, more publicity, more recognition. Uh, share, the, share the link. Promote the podcast. We really do appreciate that. And it's not us who make the podcast what it is. It's you, the listeners. And if you like there what you, you listen to and, and you want us to continue doing this, then yeah, subscribe, recommend us to friends and family, you know, buy Gillespie's coffee, do it. Mm-hmm. Do it. So yeah. And uh, here's a spoiler. Uh, Pastor Borgart and I are going to be doing plenary at Carleton College next summer for the Higher Things Conference. So sign up now. So yeah, d- dig your bomb shelter now, kids. And uh in case of emergency, there is a flotation device under your seat that can be deployed. But, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. the coffee kicked in, I apologize. So, thanks for listening. <laughs> thanks for listening, as always. Uh, come back for a brand new episode next week. Merry Christmas. And uh, I hope we pass the audition. See ya. Do you like what you're listening to? Higher Things podcasts are free for you, but they aren't free to produce. Please consider supporting the Higher Things podcasts, as Lutheran as it gets, Gospeled Boldly, and The Black Cloister. Check out www.higherthings.org support for more information. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.